Good evening, everyone. I'm David Leslie, director of the Rothko Chapel, and we're going to go a little off script uh, from your program. I think all of us today, in particular in this state, in this part of the world, are really struggling with what the meaning of the shooting in Sutherland Springs, Texas, was all about yesterday. And I think on something like that, as the stories start to emerge, and we realize that that vulnerability of that community could be the vulnerability of our own community, the complexities of uh, a culture that puts guns so prominent in individual rights, the question of mental health, uh, living in domestic situations. I think it's uh, one thing we do here at the Rothko Chapel a lot is we call it just holding space for a moment to think a little bit about the people who are impacted, not only in that community. I don't know, I can only testify for myself, but I know that something like that impacts me also, so I can only assume that the reverberations of an, of an event like that in a little town, in a little place in the world, it reverberates and it connects to other things that have happened likewise. I just read you briefly what we post on our Facebook site today and then just a moment of silence before we move into this evening's program. We're deeply saddened to learn of the mass shooting yesterday morning in Sutherland Springs, Texas. Our prayers and thoughts are with the members of First Baptist Church in the entire community impacted by this immense tragedy. The effects of the shooting will reverberate not just in Sutherland Springs community, but throughout our entire country, if not the world. When atrocities such as this one happen, especially within a religious sanctuary or a sacred place, we are particularly mindful of the value of places where all of us can be safe and free from violence. May there soon be a day when these senseless tragedies are no more. Again, it's my privilege to do the first welcome to a place where people, we hope you're safe and engage in some of the deepest things that are on your mind and your heart to be in community with others who are also seeking. So with that, it's my privilege to introduce and present my colleague, Ashley Clemmer, who's our Director of Programs and Engagement here at the Chapel, who will introduce tonight's program, Ashley. <clears throat> Good evening, and welcome to the third program in the 2017 Rothko Chapel Oscar Romero Award Series. In addition to being a sacred space open every day of the year for reflection and contemplation, the chapel has a long history of raising awareness and rallying around human rights issues. The Oscar Romero Award was established in response to the turbulent and violent times of the 1980s in Central and South America. 
1986, to commemorate Archbishop Oscar Romero's sacrifice for speaking out against the forces of oppression, death, torture, and intimidation in El Salvador, the Rothko Chapel established a special award in his name that would recognize individuals or groups of people for their integrity and courage in face of adversity and sometimes life-threatening situations. It is with this as a background that we gather in the chapel this evening for tonight's program. The Rothko Chapel 2017 Oscar Romero Award continues the focus of the chapel's spring symposium on criminal justice reform and ending mass incarceration and will be given this Sunday, November 12th, to Burundian human rights leader Pierre Clave Mbunipa and Houstonian criminal justice reformer Catherine Griffin Grignon. Tonight's program was developed to create some context around Catherine's work and to expand all of our understanding of prostitution and sex trafficking internationally and locally. To help us with this critical task, we're very fortunate to have with us experts who know well the contemporary issues and will share with us this evening. It is my honor to introduce our presenters and tonight's moderator. First, Julie Bindle is a renowned investigative journalist and has written extensively on a range of topics including violence against women, the international surrogacy trade, male order brides, trafficking, and unsolved murders. She writes regularly for The Guardian, New, York's New, New Statesman, The International Business Times, The Spectator, and frequently appears on the BBC and Sky News. She was visiting journalist at Brunel University, UK, and is now on the advisory board at Byline.com. She has recently written the book, The Pimping of Prostitution, Abolishing the Sex Work Myth, which we're selling tonight outside on the plaza, thanks to River Oaks Bookstore. Dr. Andrea Link is a physician who did her medical training and residency at Stanford University School of Medicine. She developed and implemented Healthcare for the Homeless, Houston's award-winning Healthy and Whole program at Angela House, which provides women exiting prostitution and incarceration with comprehensive trauma-informed health and wellness programming. Dr. Link also researches the psychosocial and medical issues involved in street-level prostitution and lectures on the subject at both local and national level. She is a clinical assistant professor of family and community medicine at Baylor College of Medicine and is the program manager for Healthy and Whole. Lisa Olson, our moderator, is deputy investigations editor and senior investigative reporter at the Houston Chronicle. She has more than 20 years experience specializing primarily in crime, corruption, worker safety, and human rights. Her work also has appeared in documentaries, The Eleven, A&E 2017, Ruben Cantu, The Wrong Man, CNN, and in Texas Monthly. Her series on Houston-based human trafficking ring that for years kept importing girls from Mexico and selling them in local cantinas was published in The Chronicle and in Borderline Slavery, Mexico, United States, and the human trade. Please join me in giving them a round of applause and welcoming them. Now, before we get started, I would like to go through some items for you all to please be mindful of and share the format for tonight. First, please take a moment to silence and turn off your cell phones. We ask that you save your picture taking for when you go outside during the reception. And please note that tonight's program is being documented, so there is an opportunity to 
review that and share that uh, in the future. It'll be on our website. We're going to begin the program with Julie sharing her recent research, followed by Andrea sharing what's happening locally, and then Lisa will begin a moderated conversation. You'll notice in your programs there's a little card, and we're inviting you all to be a part of this discussion by writing down the questions that you have while you're listening. And what we're going to do is we're going to be actively collecting those and bringing these up to Lisa so she can incorporate those into the conversation. So please join me one more time in welcoming Julie. Thank you all. Thank you, Ashley. And it's a real pleasure to be here um, in this auspicious venue, but also with my esteemed colleagues sharing the, the, uh, the panel. And I'd just like to, um, to obviously extend my deepest sympathy about the latest tragedy. And there is a connection, I think, about what happens with mass shootings, what happens in terrorism cases, what happens in the sex trade. Um, we can look, I would argue, to its origins of, of male violence and of a toxic masculinity that often we have come to see as inevitable or even something that is enshrined within the DNA of, of boys when they're born, as if they're somehow expected to be violent and out of control. And I just have to tell you here that as a feminist activist um, of, of 35 years now, um, feminists like me are men's best friends. And let me tell you why. Because we don't think that boys are born to be violent, or rapists, or porn users, or sex buyers, or domestic violence perpetrators. We know that this is an imposition. This is to do with socialization and to do with power and control. And it has its analogies with white supremacy. None of it is natural, and none of it is inevitable. Which leads me to the theme of my book. Now, I'm, I'm a journalist and a researcher and a campaigner, as you've heard. And I've written about many things, mostly to do with abuse and depression of girls and women. And I've traveled all over the world and I've been doing this since I was 17 years old, and I'm now 55. So um, if I'd been in the police service, I could have retired now on a massive pension. But there you go. We haven't ended patriarchy yet, so my work still continues. So why did I decide to write a book that took me two years to research, that meant I traveled 164,000 miles? I visited 40 countries, cities, states, in most areas of the world. I did 250 interviews. It meant that I was permanently jet-lagged and staying in the grottiest of hotels and flying cattle class, as we call it back in Britain, where you can barely move a muscle and you sit there for 10 hours eating horrible airline meals. Why? I was already opposed to the global sex trade from a feminist and human rights position, not from an anti-sex moralist or religious position, from very much from the position that prostitution is at its baseline, a barrier to equality between men and women, 
and it's a cause and a consequence of women's oppression. So I had that bit worked out, and I'm part of a global feminist movement uh, that saw that the main restrictions on women's lives and the reason why we still don't have equality is because of the fear and reality of men's sexual violence or threats of sexual violence towards us. The reason why I prioritised looking at the global sex trade and uncovering its message and its key deliverers of that message is because everywhere I go in the world, whoever I speak to, whether they are lay people, whether they're experts, whether they are your regular person on the street who knows nothing at all about the sex trade, they're not involved in it at all. The majority, when asked, what should we do to counter the problems of prostitution, will say pretty much the same thing, always. Legalise it. Let's make it safer for the girls. Let's bring it out from the shadows. And they all say this. Now, if I were to travel around and ask people who weren't involved in the aid industry, who, who knew nothing of, of the Africa that we know uh, is beset with, with problems mainly imposed upon it by colonialists, if we were to ask people, what shall we do to alleviate poverty and famine in Africa? Or to give clean water to all its citizens? Most people would scratch their head, wouldn't they? And say, oh, I'm not sure. What, what about building dams? What about this? But they wouldn't say with certainty, I know what to do, you do X, that'll solve it. But they do about prostitution. Why? Because the message has been wrapped up in a particularly pernicious form of mythology, lies, half-truths and assumptions. When I said to you earlier that feminists, like me, are the best friend of men, that we are optimistic, we know that men can change, we know that it's not inevitable that men grow up and become abusers. The opposite view is taken by progressives and liberals who should know better about the sex trade. They say, oh, it's always been there, it always will be. There'll always be women who'll want to sell it and there'll always be men who want to buy it. We'll never get rid of it, they say, so why don't we just make it a bit safer for the women, don't they? And yet they know nothing of this, they're not legislators. They're not working in brothels, they're not prostituting themselves. So who are these myth-makers? Who are the propagandists who have helped so many of us decide that the sex trade can never be abolished? Well, many of them are the profiteers themselves. Many of them are masquerading as so-called sex workers' rights activists. In fact, they're profiteers. Now, I'm not a conspiracy theorist. Really, I'm not. I don't think that there's an international convention of pimps once a year where they all decide which tactic now, which line shall we spin now. But it's amazing the way that people want to hear the happy hooker myth. People are reassured when these profiteers or these libertarians 
put out the view that this is about women's choice, women's empowerment. When they hold up the woman as a human shield against the sex buyer himself. When they talk about it in terms of the human rights of women to prostitute, not the right of the sex buyer to abuse a woman for one-sided sexual pleasure. We're given analogy after analogy. We're told that, what about working at McDonald's? That's a horrible job. And you make a fraction of what you can make as a high-class hooker. And as one sex trade survivor, Evelina Giobbi, from the US who started off the modern-day abolitionist movement, sex trade abolitionist movement, as she said when somebody said to her, but I'd rather do this than work in McDonald's. She said, yes, but at least in McDonald's, you're not the meat. And this is the issue about prostitution. Would we say about the man who's in the Congo or Liberia or, or, or a very poor war-torn country who's desperate to get out of that country because bullets are being fired above his head and towards his children and his pregnant wife doesn't have enough to eat. And the only thing he can do to get his family out of that country and over to Europe or the US is to sell a kidney. Would we say, well, that's his choice, he's practicing agency, or would we say, find that surgeon and arrest him or her? Who brokered this deal? Find this person who is trafficking human organs and focusing on the worst cases of desperation and vulnerability. We wouldn't think that was okay. But when it's about renting an orifice from a woman for 10 minutes or an hour, or even for a whole week with the girlfriend experience, we think it's fine. We call a situation of permanent prostitution with domestic servitude or slavery thrown in, we call it the male order bride industry. This is about wealthy, white, Western men going usually to the global south or to countries such as Ukraine, desperately poor, and paying for a woman to do whatever he wants for him for the rest of their married life. We talk about sex surrogacy rather than prostitution. We say this is about women not being prostitutes, of course, but being kind to the 40-year-old virgin, the man who can't get a real date, the man who just needs to be able to have sex with someone who won't reject him, that he can practice on, so that when he gets a real date, then that means he'll be okay. This is just prostitution. And speaking of euphemisms, the academic world is one of the biggest pieces of propaganda. The propaganda from the academic world about the sex trade is hugely enhanced and enabled by the academy, by those who wish to get grants from the likes of George Soros, Bill and Melinda Gates, who throw money at this issue, 
throw money at countries to campaign for full decriminalisation under the guise of reducing the numbers of new HIV infection. Which doesn't work. Because if you think about it, if you actually have more Johns because you have more prostituted women, because the police don't even recognise this as a crime, then you have more sexual encounters. You have emboldened Johns. You have arrogant Johns that nothing's going to ever happen to because he's totally sanctioned. And he's going to insist on sex without a condom. How does that reduce HIV infections again, tell me? So we have academic research being churned out by institutions around the world where these people producing the research have gone a bit native. They've gone into situations where they might meet prostituted people in Nevada or in the Netherlands or in Germany where it's legal or New Zealand where it's decriminalised. Very little difference between the two. And they hang out with the women who are prostituting, who are telling them that they're happy. Guess what? They're being interviewed in the brothels. Nevada. You know that in counties in Nevada, you have legal brothels run by Dennis Hoff, biggest pimp on the planet. But Nevada has dealt with its pimping problem, it's true. There are no pimps anymore because they're all called managers and businessmen. Now, a little story about the subliminal message and about the way that euphemisms are used and about the way that you can't walk in as a researcher to a brothel and ask prostituted women whether they enjoy their jobs or not and get the right answer. When I was in Nevada, I spent a week with Dennis Hoff and his brothels. He hadn't bothered to Google me. It was perfect. The man has the ego of a small country. <laughs> he couldn't wait to show me around. And he told all the women, tell that journalist, you love it here. They were living there. They were prostituting there. In their bedrooms, that was where everything happened. They slept. They were abused. They lived. They were there for months on end. Yes, you can talk about choice. Of course you can. Nobody had a gun to the women's heads. Some of them were being double pimped. Some of them were being taken to the legal brothels by their pimps and then locked down by Dennis Hoff and his assistant pimps for the duration. They're not allowed out unless they're with an assistant pimp in case they pick up an STI in town from having consensual sex and give it to the Johns. Because guess what? The Johns don't use condoms in Dennis Hoff's brothels. How do I know? Because the women on a Friday all had plasters on their arms which hid the fact that they'd had a blood test. Every single one of them. And I managed to get inside of the receptionist's counter and saw the names of all of the women and a tick next to the blood test for each week. So I'm interviewing a woman I've been given permission to talk to and I'm respectfully standing away from her bed while she's posing on the bed with the hooker boots and there's a big picture of pornography of her on the wall Anyone else in the room have a pornographic photograph of themselves on their bedroom wall? No, didn't think so. So I notice that there's no personal effects. There's nothing, nothing, nothing. If you looked in my bedroom, 
you'd be able to work out I was a journalist, I was a bit untidy, I like a brandy every now and again. <laughs> There's all kinds of clues that you would see what I'm reading, <laughs> notes to myself. You'd see all of that. There was nothing. Yes, she told me she loves her job. Yes, she told me she's happy. No, nobody forced her to do it. And as I'm about to leave, I said to her, I noticed that you don't have any personal effects. I said, is, is this um, you know, something that you find you know, is, is uncomfortable or have you not unpacked? Have you not been here long? And she, something shifted on her face and she opened the drawer next to her bed and she took out a framed photograph of a beautiful little girl, her daughter. And she showed me this picture and she said, this is my daughter, but I'm not ever going to let one of those Johns see her and I don't want any of those Johns touching this photograph with his horrible, spermy hands. And that told me everything I needed to know. If I may, I'm not going to speak for very much longer because I'd really like us to discuss and I want to hear um, my friends on the panel too and I want to, to, to hear from you. But I mentioned academics who go into brothels in Nevada and do interviews and are given the usual guff and then put it in their research about how this is empowering for women and the Johns are all respectful and legalization's the best the best model of any. And we then get to know about prostitution from that because it's in our tabloid newspapers, in our broadsheet newspapers, on our radio programs. You hear all of this stuff, don't you? And the research that they do often is based entirely on their own observations and what they bring to it themselves. They want it to be quite cool and groovy, quite edgy to be in sex work, as they call it. And there was even one academic I met at a conference in Vienna, which I'm about to read a short extract from the book about, who was doing research based on women in Nevada brothels. Now remember, this is doctoral research. This is an entire PhD. And it was on the ability of sex workers in Nevada brothels to achieve orgasm. This is a PhD, I kid you not. Her findings, it's more likely once the woman turns 40. <laughs> I interviewed 50 sex trade survivors for this book and I've interviewed two, 300 other women who are in or out of the sex trade, on street, off street, trafficked, Pimped, not pimped, escorts, street prostituted, you name it, every, bit, every category you've heard of. Trust me when I tell you there is no sexual pleasure for the woman. None. She's not consenting. Guess how we know? Because money wouldn't have to change hands. I went to an academic conference in Vienna as part of, of the research for this book. And they tried to keep me out when they saw my name. They told me that it was only for researchers. And I said, oh, I'm a qualified researcher, actually. That's what I did before I was a journalist. Oh, yes, but we're full. Oh, somebody's just told me that they've had to cancel, so I'll have her space. 
And it was a little bit like being a vegan at a butcher's convention. (laughs) There was 168 delegates at that conference. Three had any problem whatsoever with prostitution. All of them were advocating full decriminalisation of the sex trade. That doesn't mean just stopping arresting the prostituted person, which everyone in this room should support. The women and men in prostitution should never be arrested. It's a terrible violation. They were talking about the New Zealand model of decriminalising all aspects, pimping, brothel owning, the lot. And there were academics or doctoral students. And what I did, I spent about a week on and off doing this, before, during and after the conference. I went through every single one of the presentations that were being delivered from the book of abstracts. And I worked out there were a number of widely used euphemisms that the academic world is using now when discussing writing about and researching the sex trade. And this, to go full circle back to how I began this talk, is how we have come to understand the sex trade. Through Alice Through the Looking Glass, Orwellian craziness, where it's presented to us as anything but the abuse and human rights violation that it is. For example, contract breach means rape. He's done something she told him not to do. Well, that's rape. Business practices is pimping. Facilitate disabled people's sexual lives means disabled men buying sex. You know, the poor man that can't get a real date. They present him as a deserving John. Deeply offensive to disabled people, as well as a very clever tactic of the pro-prostitution lobby. Occupational health risks are, really, violence, sexually transmitted diseases and rape. Job amenities is the ability to turn down undesirable clients. Effective erotic services performed by prostitutes, sex acts. Third parties, pimps. Sex work management, running a brothel and or women. Grooming gangs, pimps who target girls under the age of 18. And the international marriage community, mail order brides. And throughout this book of abstracts, coerce, victim, trafficking, and survivor were put in scare quotes in the conference materials. In other words, trafficking became the imagination of Christian fundamentalists and feminists alike. And in fact, it was referred to as migration for sex work. Now, when you describe prostitution like that, is it any wonder that people who don't know better believe that blanket decriminalisation of this hideous trade is what would solve the problems. Thank you for listening. This is a a really amazing kind of world tour of red light districts and very strange uh, sexual practices, but it sheds really a a light on some very odd Contrast between countries that I think we consider to be similar. 
Um, so when you read Julie's book, you learn, for example, that prostitution is legalized in Germany and it's actually legal to hire a woman for group sex and if it turns violent, there really isn't much of any consequence. Uh, we all know about the red light district in Amsterdam, I'm sure, but it's become a place where almost no European women are for sale. It's a place where a lot of women from other countries are being brought in, uh, which is alarming to the Dutch police, but they don't really know what to do about it because it's legal. New Zealand, the land of the hobbits, uh, Tolkien, you know, the scene for those lovely films, is the place where everything is legal, as, as Julie's always, already mentioned. So there's, but Northern Europe, there's this really interesting contrast between Holland and Germany, and then you go across the border um, into Denmark, where uh, caregivers are being uh, instructed that they should service their disabled clients. And then you go further north into Sweden and Norway, and you find in Sweden a country where after a prostitute was uh, beheaded, they decided that they wanted to reform the law, and they created what Julie calls the Nordic model, where prostitution is legal, but buying prostitution is not legal. So at any moment, a woman who is in a situation she feels dangerous, she can summon a police officer, and the person who is buying her services it can be taken away. I wondered if you could talk a little bit about why did this division occur in Northern Europe, Sweden, Norway, France, Ireland, Northern Ireland, who've adopted this Nordic model, and what do you think were some of the motivating factors uh, in that division? You've talked about the academics, and you've also talked about the kind of faux sex worker rights movement. But I wonder if you could explain a little bit about how that evolved. Well, we've now um, started to call this particular law of criminalizing the demand and decriminalizing the women and men who are prostituting. Uh, we call it the uh, abolitionist model because it has spread its tentacles beyond the, the, the Nordic region. And uh, I have to say, as someone who has to visit those countries uh, or chooses to visit those countries very regularly that have the law, I'm delighted that it's gone to France because the food is far better there <laughs> than in Norway and Sweden where it's really expensive and it's not very good. So there you go. That was a nice, a nice little uh, turn up for the books. I think that the reason why we have to, um, I think the reason what to explain why there is such a huge difference, even in countries next door to each other, with legislation, is simply about who was in Parliament and who were the most effective feminists and human rights mm -hmm. campaigners at the time that the, the laws came in. Um, as Lisa's already said, the, the first country to adopt this abolitionist model was Sweden in 1999, so we've had plenty of time now to evaluate its successes. And it came about not, not only because of the still unsolved murder of Katrine da Costa, who was street prostituted, um, and the feminist um, response to that, which was, we're sick of women being treated in this appalling way, and men getting away with it because they're in prostitution. But also because at the time there were some very good, strong feminists in Parliament. And the leftist party had not yet been indoctrinated with the crazy Amnesty International type policy, which is about human rights to be prostituted. 
as opposed to a human right not to be prostituted. So at the time that it was introduced, the police didn't like the law. The general public weren't that keen on the law. But gradually it had a normative effect. Children were growing up realizing that prostitution was a human rights violation of the highest order and not conducive with equality between women and men. And because the government did something very clever and necessary and brought in public education at the same time as the legislation, people got to understand what it was about. Can you imagine banning smoking from public buildings without having a, uh, a public awareness and education campaign at the same time? There'd be riots. But we, we came to realise why that was a reasonable thing. Even smokers, even the majority of smokers supported it in my country. Um, why is a country such as Denmark very close to, to Sweden? Um, why does that take an opposite view of this? Because the pro-prostitution lobby is stronger, because there are fewer strong feminists in Parliament, and because the women's movement there um, has been co-opted by a neoliberal form of sort of postmodernist politics that looks at feminism as the rights of the individual to crack glass ceilings in large companies rather than looking at which women are at the bottom. So Julie in her book talks about the myth of the pretty woman, the, the movie we all know, but of course we have another movie in Texas, right? We have the best little whorehouse in Texas where the women sing and dance with their johns and kick up their heels and everyone, everyone is, it's run by Dolly Parton, a very smiling, wonderful woman, right? Of course, we know that that place really existed and a lot of our legislators went there, right? Um, but it, it, supposedly prostitution is illegal in, in Houston and, and uh, yet we have 200 or so uh, massage parlors that are really, I, I think it by and large fronts for prostitution. Um, it's also a crime to solicit prostitution all over the U.S., although it's less enforced. Um, there are less men jailed for being Johns than women jailed for being prostitutes. We've had a national movement since 2000 to uh, fight human trafficking, which is coerced prostitution. But someone who wants to obtain a visa or relief under that federal law has to prove to a prosecutor or to the government satisfaction that they have been beaten or coerced or kidnapped. And um, a lot of the relief has gone to a small number of, of victims. Um, teenage victims tend to get more help than others, but there's still not that much help available. And I wanted to ask Andrea a little bit about her work helping local victims and the Texas experience. Yeah, so um, Texas, unfortunately, is the only state um, that still allows prosecutors to charge individuals with a felony if they've had three or more misdemeanor prostitution charges. Um, you know, every couple of sessions in the legislature, somebody comes up with um, trying to do away with that, but we still have that. As of a few years ago, there were 350 women in a state penitentiary serving up to a two-year sentence for prostitution. So I think uh, Texas is a, a long way away from, I think, decriminalizing any of this. Um, what, what we feel so strongly in the direct service provider world 
First of all, nothing that Julie is saying is controversial for us. If you actually talk to these women, you will hear um, really stories that are, are horrific. And, you know, I think I'm hoping that there is starting to be a cultural shift where we start to look at these women as victims or even better survivors who are not just deserving of our sympathy, but deserving of help. And um, my program, which is Healthy and Whole, which is at Angela House, is a wraparound holistic program to help women um, recover and exit from prostitution. And um, because uh, the, um, they have deficits in most areas of their lives, we really need to offer comprehensive care to deal with the trauma that they've sustained the substance abuse, um, mental illness, um, lack of job skills. And so that's where, um, that's where we put our effort and we know that, we know that what we do um, works. So everything that we offer at Angela House is evidence-based and um, all of our women come to us voluntarily and uh, we have seen truly miraculous and wonderful um, turnaround of people's lives. In Texas, we've also had a law for quite a long time now that's an anti-trafficking law, uh, but it's very little used. In fact, uh, Harris County is one of the only counties that has used that law. Bear County has used it. Um, and it requires, in many cases, for the victims to testify against the people who have abused them, the people who have raped them or kidnapped them, uh, lots of different scenarios. And in many cases in Houston, some of the victims have been held in jail on a prostitution charge, which is first offense misdemeanor, until they agreed to provide information, which was very controversial. I wonder if we could talk a little bit about the challenge in arming cases against the people who are really behind all this, who are often organized criminals, and both the situation internationally there and, and locally. Because of the way that the pro-prostitution discourse is framed about it being the woman's choice and something that's empowering for her and a better job than any other, often the police are seen as the only problem in, in her life. Uh, the Johns, therefore, are let off the hook. The pimps are let off the hook. There's this great... Um, rally cry from the sex workers' rights movement, which is stigma kills. Well, stigma doesn't kill, the Johns kill and the pimps kill. However, there is a huge problem with, as I'm sure you, you all appreciate, with prohibition, which is what you have here in the US. It's not working, it's not working, and it, it is not sustainable. Uh, if the women are frightened of the police because of their arrest, they won't report their pimps and their johns. The pimps and the johns know this and hold it over them because they're less likely, much, far less likely, to, to be apprehended or not be able to buy themselves out of, uh, of jail time than other women. And it makes them terribly vulnerable. Carrying on arresting the women is a gross human rights violation. And it gives ammunition to the side that, say, that prostitution is totally unproblematic, except for the police. It means that the women are caught and trapped. And then, if they do manage to access 
uh, a programme such as yours, an exit programme, they have criminal convictions. In my country, they're seen as sex offenders. I, I know some women who can't even go to their children's school and set foot on the premises to pick up their child. But nothing happens to the Johns. They're rarely arrested. Trafficking, obviously, um, is a process rather than anything separate from the sex trade. It's one of the mechanisms to pimp women within or external to, to the borders. But unless we actually start seeing prostitution, whether it's through trafficking or local pimping or whatever, as something done to women, then we will never be able to reframe this and see the women as victims. I don't mean infantilizing the women. Yes, they're survivors. Some of them don't survive. Some of them don't survive. But prohibition is not sustainable. There are only two roads to go. Either the abolitionist model, where we start thinking about a world without prostitution and deterring the Johns and assisting women out, or full legalization, decriminalization by any other name, where you just give up on it and have these hideous brothels where men can buy whatever they want. So um, one day I was visiting um, a client of ours in jail and she told me that um, she, the police had asked her to flip on her trafficker. And um, she said that she'd heard a rumor that her pimp or trafficker had put a price on her head. And if she spoke to the police, um, he would have her killed. And she asked me, what should I do? And I remember thinking, in all my years of training, in all my experience, I, I have nothing to um, go to to help you answer this question. And so I told her, I want you to do whatever you think keeps yourself safe. And so the reality is, is that of course we want these traffickers behind bars. Of course we want to build powerful cases against them. But when we ask these women to um, provide that evidence, we really are putting them at risk. And one of the things I really appreciate is under Kim Og, um, we are seeing a move in the district attorney's office to really try to find enough evidence to convict without testimony of the victim herself. And I think that that's very promising. Um, the other thing I just wanted to mention when you talked about the charges and that these charges follow you. Um, 25 states, not including Texas, not yet anyways, um, have, created, um, have created laws that allow vacation, uh, the vacating of charges of prostitution if they were proven to be done while compelled for trafficking. And in 25 states, we're seeing women absolutely reclaim their lives, be able to um, go for jobs that they never would have because they had a felony. And actually, in this legislature, a bill was filed by Sinfronia Thompson, um, but unfortunately, it didn't make it out of committee. Um, but I think that this is uh, the national trend, and I would really hope that Texas um, sees uh, what a benefit this can be uh, for women who really have these charges just dog them and pursue them for the rest of their lives. There has been a, a very 
long-term effort in Houston through, um, in part through the Federal Human Trafficking, Anti-Trafficking Task Force, but then a number of other organizations that have come up and also both the city and county have efforts to um, target trafficking and target the organized crime mechanisms that support illegal prostitution and selling of women. There have been large cases in Houston uh, that you can read about. If you Google on the internet, uh, a guy named Maximiliano Mondragon was arrested years ago. He had more than 100 women that he was holding as, as his slaves, along with members of his network who were primarily from El Salvador and Honduras. We had a 10-year effort by federal prosecutors to track down and shut down a ring run by a guy named uh, Gerardo Salazar El Gallo, who literally was kidnapping young girls from the streets of Mexico and bringing them up here and selling them in bars in Houston. Um, so there have been some really good uh, efforts, things that took years to do, where the, the feds went after uh, bars uh, as property to try to sell for victims, not all of those work out. Those, that money still has not quite gone to the, the victims. But there's still not a lot of support for victims once they exit, even if they're teenage victims who've testified, who've done everything. There's not a lot of support for those people. There might be some short-term um, assistance with providing a job or, or housing assistance. Usually if they get a T visa, so they're an immigrant victim, it's a very long process until they get status. Um, and some of the victims I met in Houston were still living very close to the places where they were sold and trafficked, so they were within the area that was still kind of under the control of the organized crime groups that they had testified against. Um, I wondered if, if we could talk a little bit about, Andrea, you know, and, and Julie, what kind of obstacles face women who are trying to exit this life, um, whether or not they have provided testimony against their victims. Um, there was a couple there were a couple of really great quotes in in Julie's book from survivors. Do you want me to read those? Do you want to Please, read them? Yes. Uh, one woman, Haley, a sex trade survivor from Minnesota in twenty fifteen, says this in, in Julie's book. Virginity was taken from me before I knew it was something someone could take. Before I knew it was something I'm supposed to care about. You can't care about something before you ever had it. By the time you know what it is to care about, you don't have it anymore. And here's another um, quote from a woman named Lorraine, who's a sex trade survivor from Montreal, also from 2015. I got raped every week, every day. I was incontinent. I would do blowjobs in just the state I was in. They would see the state I was in and come and get me and rape me. I couldn't remember who I was. I didn't know who this guy was who raped me yesterday and who would rape me again today. So just a couple of quotes to set the scene here. So I, I think that one of the biggest challenges facing women who are trying to exit prostitution is uh, recovering from trauma. A leader in my field likes to say that if prostitution is the world's oldest profession, then childhood sexual abuse is one generation older. So what we see with so many of these women is childhood sexual abuse compounded by years of trauma out in the street. We know that the average time in prostitution is 17 years. So after 17 years, you have burned your bridges or the bridges have been burned with your family. You are likely homeless, substance abusing, 
with mental health issues, um, no job skills, and there are very few residential treatment programs, even for just traditional substance abuse. But I was at a conference a few weeks ago, and a survivor leader said that traditional substance abuse treatment didn't work for her because they were trying to take drugs out of a body that wasn't hers. So in addition to those other things, we need to also focus on helping women connect mind and body. So this is a time intensive, and um, it, this, you can't do this in a week. You can't even do it in a month. I think you could argue it takes six to nine months. So um, you need uh, concentrated wraparound holistic services to help these women heal from what they've been through. I absolutely agree. Everything that, that I've come to understand about how to exit prostitution and how to keep out of prostitution relies on some services being there that doesn't just see prostitution as an inevitability. And in, in my country and, and elsewhere, the so-called help agencies, um, and usually they are they're funded by, by health money, and usually this is HIV and STI prevention, are there to patch women up and send them back out on the streets. Exiting isn't even an issue with most of these organisations. And I know because I was one of the researchers on the biggest piece, uh, the, big, the biggest study ever um, on exiting prostitution in England. And some of these women told me that when they went for help to the health-funded organisations, they were given condoms, and a cup of tea, and a chat, and they were asked how their boyfriend was, and their boyfriend was their pimp. And in desperately trying to make sex work seem legitimate and to remove the stigma from it, these help agencies did nothing of the kind. They destigmatized the pimps and the trade itself, not the women. One of the most... <laughs> A story that actually made me cry when I heard it, and many things made me cry when I was writing this book, and not just the airline meals, by the way. <laughs> but, but one thing that, that just stays with me, it haunts me, was a survivor called Sabrina Valise, who is now a great sex trade abolitionist. Now, Sabrina is... You can read about her if you, if you Google Sabrina Valise and my name. It will come up on the BBC website. She's an incredible um, activist. She was prostituted from the age of 14. And she finally got out of prostitution when she was 40. And she got out because the decriminalization model in New Zealand, where she was prostituted, that she fought to introduce, thinking it would help women like her, turned out to be an unmitigated disaster. And she saw this immediately. So Sabrina is now fighting on the other side of the fence. But when she was 16, two years into being prostituted, she went to an organisation called the New Zealand Prostitute Collective. And if you look at their literature, to all intents and purposes, it would look exactly like they're there to help women in the sex trade where well, they're actually there to help women stay in the sex trade. They're funded by the government. They were the drivers behind decriminalization. They're the propagandists and the mouthpiece for this law. 
So Sabrina, a 16-year-old, turned up at the office and said, I'm 16, I'm in street prostitution. I want to get out and I want to help other girls get out. And they laughed at her and said, the stigma's the problem. If this was recognised as real work, and if the police stopped bothering us, and if it was all legal and above board, you'd be fine. I'll tell you what, every Friday we have a cheese and wine evening where we all get together and chat. Come to that tomorrow night. Sabrina did. She stayed in it another 24 years, and that's what made me cry. Every single bit of that woman's youth, every single bit of it was stolen from her. And so what we need are more programmes like yours. And we need to recognise why we need exiting programmes. To get you out of a legitimate trade. I don't need one to get me out of journalism. Why would you need exit programmes? All you need, actually, is to listen to what the women are saying that they need. It might be they just need to be moved to a different home address. It could be they just need to be reunited with their family. Or it might mean intensive therapy and drug rehab. But it might not. It might actually just be the smallest thing. Somebody saying, yes, you're better than this, and this isn't your fault. I want to just jump in here and mention again sort of a, the Houston angle, um, especially because it is um, uh, Rothko Chapel's honoree, um, Kathy Griffin Grinan, Grinan. Um, she was the one who really started the, uh, providing services for this population of women um, while still incarcerated. And she started the Been There, Done That program in Harris County Jail and then the Roadway to Freedom at Plain State. And um, the work that she did really changed the conversation from looking at these women as criminal perpetrators to survivors who need varying levels of support to exit prostitution. Uh, I wanted to say something too about some of the domestic violence and uh, prostitution cases that have come up in Harris County because there's a lot that don't get that much media attention in part because a lot of the Harris County DA's work has in recent years focused on juvenile victims who have a right to their privacy and who they protect. There are a lot of scenarios that I think would be very frightening to parents um, of teenagers. I'm a parent of teenagers, and when I read some of the information about one particular case that I'd like to share just very briefly before going on to one of the questions is the young girl who was uh, visiting the mall with her friend, and they were asked by a classmate to go to a party at a hotel. And when she got to the party, she discovered that there were other people there she didn't know. And they were, they were both slipped something in their drink. And the next thing she knows, she is with a bunch of men she doesn't know. And she and her friend are being uh, attacked. And they no longer have access to their cell phones. Luckily, her mother was able to somehow track her down, probably with an iPhone uh, app, and came to the hotel, knocked on the door, and called the police and was able to help rescue her. But there are a number of cases that are very similar to that. And she was only one in a series of girls who had been sort of recruited the same way. Mm. And kind of what I think some of the recruiters count on is if a girl is, is raped after being drugged like that, then they start to think, okay, now I have no choice. 
my parents are not going to take me back. They're not going to believe me. They're going to think I really did this. And they start to be sold on the internet or on Backpage. And there are numbers of stories, not just of runaways, but of girls who just accepted a, an invitation to a party from somebody maybe they didn't know well enough. I don't know if that's a scenario you've run into in other countries, Julie, but that's mm -hmm. a common scenario here in our city. It, it is <clears throat> a scenario um, that I've come across. In, in 2005, I came across um, a case just in a, a local paper of a girl called Charlene Downs who disappeared from her home in the north of England when she was uh, 14. And what happened when police started to dig beneath the surface is they found um, a town completely riddled with child sexual exploitation where men were doing exactly that, drugging, raping, and then selling girls into prostitution. And police had known that this was happening, but they were reluctant to do anything about it because some of the most of the men, because of the demographic of this particular area in England, um, were of Pakistani Muslim origin because it, they were old mill towns, which is how people from Pakistan had migrated in to work those jobs. So they clearly weren't prostituting these girls because they were Pakistani or Muslim. Um, but unfortunately, racism was rife in these particular towns, and police didn't want quote unquote a race riot on their hands so they decided the girls could just be sacrificed for this and it became a huge uh, expose where hundreds of girls have have uh, have been recruited targeted and pimped in this way and what's really interesting about it is nobody will call it prostitution i mean i do when i write about it i said they were pimps they were selling these girls into prostitution they preferred to call them grooming gangs. Well, grooming is something I spend about 30 seconds in the morning doing before I leave the <laughs> So, So it's, again, sanitizing that language. But yes, mm -hmm. we, do, we do have that. There's a lot of really good questions that are related, some related to what we just talked about. Um, this one I, is really very related because some of these rings do use, many of them use the internet and use cell phones to sell these girls. Um, and there was the question is, what do you think of the news today that the tech industry, mainly Facebook, Google, and Microsoft, agreed to stop resisting a bill in Congress that prohibits sex commerce on the internet? I don't know about this law. Is the person who asked this question want to elaborate a little bit more? Do you know about it? Do you want to, Do you want to elaborate a little bit? Hey. It's really interesting because, of course, for a long time we've had Backpage, and I think, unfortunately, it might have been a factor in the Houston Press just closing that they no longer take those kinds of sleazy ads. Um, that's been a big. That's actually been a big tool for police investigating trafficking: mm. is Backpage and Craigslist, because they've been just they've been tools mm -hmm. for prostitution. So mm -hmm. the next stage is when you should get rid of them. Then you have all the online forums. The researcher from Texas Christian University who found the 200 illicit massage parlors in Houston was using an online forum that rated the massage parlors that provided erotic services. 
um, really blatantly on the internet to do some then set up more research on mm. those those locations. This is why it always makes me laugh when people say legalize it or it'll just go underground. It's never underground. The Johns have to find it and they can find it so easily. So I've I've never known anything so stupid as an argument because under legalization and decriminalization for each legal brothel or licensed brothel at least four illegal ones pop up behind it because people stop looking. But yeah, advertising is a really interesting one because the police do use it to track the Johns and in countries where buying sex is, is or attempting to buy sex is a criminal offence. Often that's how they, they, trace, they trace the Johns. This is one that addresses the sort of the pretty woman myth. Uh, do you believe that there are any women who truly feel empowered by sex work? Nope. <laughs> and I want to make it really clear here, I don't tell women that they are lying or stupid, and nor do I believe it either. But as all of the sex trade survivors told me that I interviewed and spent time with, you don't say how hell it is when you're in it. You can't. You'd fall apart. And, uh, you know, as my friend will tell you very clearly, the way to survive being penetrated by someone you don't want near you, let alone inside you, is to dissociate, is to leave yourself, which is why the psychological damage is so horrendous, where women have talked about not even being able to connect to their children, to loved ones, to have a relationship. And that dissociation affects you. You can't just silo it off. It, it's a permanent state. Now, when you leave, if you're being supported, often you can have the courage to speak about the horror of it if you're in a safe environment. But there, there, is, there are some that, that many of my interviews referred to as the 1%. So there's the exception to the rule, and they're not representative. And we do not make legislation or policy for a tiny minority. For example, there will somewhere in this state be an African-American man who will tell you he's never heard any racist comment ever from any white person in his entire life and he's 40 years old. Well, I'm sure we'd all say, good for you, and I'm pleased. But don't come into this meeting about police brutality and racism and use that to argue to repeal the laws against racism and incitement to racial hatred. And so I think we spend so much time talking about this mythical 1% whose children all go to fee-paying schools. You, you do say, you do talk about in your book that there are some women who've really made it big, made it, struck it rich, perhaps being very short-term hookers and longer-term mm -hmm. madams. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about a couple of those characters? Because there are some of them who were involved in the, mm. the the legalization lobbying sure. movement. No, there are. Uh, you're absolutely right, Lisa. The, the woman that I tracked down who's now running a bed and breakfast in Amsterdam, where, as you know, there are window brothels and it's legal, called Xaviera Hollander. Um, it's now in her 70s. She coined the, the phrase happy hooker. She wrote a book. There's been a musical. There's been a play. She's traded off this for a long time. And I decided to go and 
see what was what. And 10 minutes into the interview, in her happy hooker B&B, that she now calls the happy house or something, um, which I had to stay in for the night, being entertained by her and her husband, which, trust me, you don't want my job. Um, it became very clear that she had spent five minutes in prostitution and quickly turned to pimping. And when I said to her, so did you, how long did you actually sell sex for before you became a pimp? The shock on her face. It's like, pimp? Well, yeah, you were selling, you were running women, weren't you? Oh, well, and she turned hostile. And then there's uh, another woman, the Carol Lee, who coined the phrase sex work, which has done more to legitimise this abusive trade than anything. Because now most police use it, most journalists use it, most health professionals use it. People think it's dignifying the woman. And, and she was a pimp. So you have to look behind this because, for example, the term sex work includes pimps and brothel owners. You're a sex worker if you're a brothel owner. So it's quite clever. But yes, yeah, some, women, some women do make some money, but usually by promoting themselves to the pimping. The, the, the only way to, in prostitution usually is down. You don't get promoted in prostitution. You start at a grim level and it's downhill from there, would you not say? Andrea, have you met any happy hookers in Houston? Well, so thank you for answering that so boldly and honestly. And, you know, here's my perspective. I, I never want to deny anybody's lived experience, but I'll tell you what, I have never heard a woman say that she found any aspect of prostitution to be empowering. Now, the exception to that is women looking in retrospect at the beginning of their time in the life. Mm. And I remember a woman saying that when she first uh, would walk the streets, instead of seeing men down the street, she just saw money, money, right. money. But the reality is, is that um, fairly soon they realize that you can't game this. No matter how intuitive you are about danger, no matter how many techniques you have to try to spot the dangerous John, the truth is you can't predict the violence and you can't prevent the degradation. So, you know, a, reading Julie's book was so enlightening to me because I'd never understood the sex worker movement until I realized it's not a sex worker movement. This is a false narrative being promoted by the same people who exploit these women on the street. It's the same profiteers, it's the same predators. They're the ones who are promoting this false narrative. Well, and this question feeds right into that. Because um, some of the people making a lot of the money do this. Um, what does the growth of the porn industry mean and why is it growing? What are the humanistic and sociological implications? Some of the people you were talking about who are the sex worker movement promoters are, as you write about in the book, people who are pornographers or pimps. Um, can you talk about some of your encounters there? Well, you know, as I'm sure we all appreciate pornography is simply prostitution, but with a camera. And there, there really, there really is, is no further distinction that I can make. I've heard some terrible stories from women in the global north and the global south, but one set of stories stands out really clearly for me in Cambodia, 
with a group of, of six women I was interviewing who were who just actually turned up to meet me, having been prostituting by the disused railway line all night. And none of these women are empowered, trust me, they are the very opposite of being empowered. And they couldn't wait to tell me about all the horror, the violence, the abuse from police, johns, pimps. But they all told me one same thing, which was that their johns had become more violent. Johns had become more violent. And they put this down directly to pornography on their cell phones. Because the Johns would say, I want this. And it was gonzo porn, the most violent porn. And they wanted to reenact what was happening on that gonzo porn. They had the right, they were watching it, they wanted the women to do it. And clearly, if you destigmatize uh, the sex trade, and if you glamorize it and use euphemisms to describe it, the same can be said for the, um, the porn trade. And, and I, I went to, um, to the LA uh, Porn Awards two years ago. I didn't win anything. Um, <laughs> what a surprise. <laughs> I think it would make a great movie. <laughs> and and uh, heard um, James Dean. Does, you know, not, not the actual real James Dean, but the pornographer James Dean. Have you heard about him? He's been accused of rape. Surprise, surprise. He's a pornographer. Um, th this came out a couple of years ago. No, j just after I'd been to the, to the Porn Awards and was, um, was watching him and how he was with the women. Because it, at that time, I didn't know these allegations would come out. I just saw him as yet another sleazebag, which he is, but he's a, he's a rapist sleazebag, we've had confirmed. And the way that he was touching the women and groping the women and talking about the women was vile. And if you dehumanise a woman enough to penetrate her, knowing she doesn't want you to do that because you're paying her, and photograph her being abused, then why wouldn't you be a man who hates women, who's a rapist, who's a pimp? And I see no distinction between the men who sell women in pornography and the men who pimp women directly on the street. I don't know about you. No, I, <laughs> I agree with you. Uh, I think this is a really interesting question and I think it does play into that scenario I was talking about where the teenage girl is contacted by a teenage boy from her same school and lured to a hotel where a groomer is waiting with some drugs. Um, with a culture that says women have the choice and empowerment of, this says prostitution, but I would say also of just sexual freedom, right? Sexual choice, the hookup culture. Could and do younger women see this as not only okay, but almost glorified as by pop culture in today's society? And I'm thinking of, you know, Tinder. I'm thinking of um, really the hookup culture. I mean, it's pretty common in high schools these days. You know, it doesn't mean anything. You can send a text message, sexting. All that does. How does that lend itself to then exploitation? Does that open the door? You want to take that one, Andrea? Um, well, I mean, I can tell you that um, I'm constantly horrified by how much we glorify pimp culture. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, you know, when it's commonly used as a verb, you know, like you know, I'm I'm pimping. I'm so cool. 
Um, and, I, and I think, you know, and this is often from upper middle class Caucasian kids, and I think, you have no idea. You have no idea what a pimp does. You have no idea um, the pain that this person causes. There should be absolutely nothing glorified about this person. There's nothing positive about this person. So that, I, I know more about that. Than the, Some of these cases yeah. where there have been long sentences, they were, there were teenage boys who were recruited to be mm -hmm. the recruiters, sort of the middlemen, and they were offered cars and mm -hmm. cell phones, things teenage boys would want. Mm -hmm. And I think that they're being sold this idea that it's just an extension of the hookup culture. There's really no harm in it. It's easy money. That's a good point. I mean, that, that's why, why I title my book, you know, The Pimping of Prostitution, because prostitution itself is being pimped to be anything but. As I said earlier, it's now about sex surrogacy or the girlfriend experience or sex work. And this, of course, this message is... is, is also being absorbed by boys as well as girls. And when I was doing the investigation into the, the child abuse pimping gangs in the northern cities of England all that time ago, I saw exactly the same, that there were young recruiters. There were the, um, there were the major pimps in their 20s and 30s and 40s. And then there were the teenage boys that would recruit the girls at the first stage and then introduce them to older men. And at which point do, they, do those boys stop becoming victims and start being perpetrators? That's a really complicated issue that we've got to somehow get our heads around. And one other short example of that I want to give you, if I may, was one of my trips to Amsterdam doing this research. I went to the window brothels to interview some Johns coming in and out of the, uh, the brothels. And I saw a man in his early 20s leaning against one of the window brothels, smoking a cigarette while his friend was inside abusing a woman, paying for sex. And I asked him if I could interview him, and he agreed. And he told me that he'd first paid for sex when he was 12. Why not? He said, it's legal in this country. In America, it's not legal. In your country, it's not legal. In my country, it's legal. And I was with a sex trade survivor who was accompanying me on the trip. And she said to me, that's child abuse. But who's abusing this child? Because the prostituted woman isn't abusing him. The culture is. The culture is abusing him. And I'd say it's the same. Mm -hmm. This is an interesting question, and there have been a number of documentaries about prostitution and human trafficking that were filmed here in Houston. I don't know if you've seen any of those, you've probably seen other ones. Do they expose what's going on or maybe glorify it? Um, I think that, for me, the answer to that question depends on which documentary you've seen. There's some of them that have been uh, filmed in Houston that have been made by activists and the purpose of those has been really to distribute photographic evidence of what was going on in a lot of places to try to open the eyes of people and they're not they're not very cinemagra uh, cinematograph whatever that word is <laughs> sorry um, they're not very entertaining shall we say they're they're just showing you what's there and, and there's others about um, for example um, a recent one that's about a 
a figure in the same human trafficking ring I was talking about with uh, Gerardo Salazar El Gallo, who would tattoo the women he sort of owned with his symbol, the rooster. His, one of his henchmen is still at large, and so the whole point of that hour-long series was really to try to encourage people to phone in tips. I don't see any mm -hmm. harm in that. Um, there's others, though, that really are sort of, I think, focusing on the sex part and not so much on the trafficking part, not so much the harm part. Um, you know, there's not as many uh, documentaries about plain old trafficking, forced labor, where there isn't a sex component. Yeah, I think the ones where it's uh, dramatized are sort of give me the creeps, honestly, and, and don't inform the conversation very much. Um, there is one documentary that I have to confess, I, I couldn't keep watching. Um, but the premise of it was, um, and, and I think there is value to watch it, these two pimps um, filmed themselves uh, in the process of luring and recruiting girls in the hopes that they were going to get a reality show. What? And so they shopped this information to a local TV station that, of course, immediately called the FBI, called law enforcement, and they were um, prosecuted and, are, as I understand, are in jail. But it's really interesting because um, I've seen it, I mean, I've, I've, women have described it, but I got to see kind of with my own eyes what these girls are up against, how manipulative they are, how they know exactly the right thing to say to get the girl to do what they want, to um, lure them in with this initial um, feeling that this is a loving relationship. And so I think when you can see raw footage like that, it'd be very hard right. for any academic who's pro-prostitution to look at that and say, yeah, that's, that's empowering to that young girl. I think we only have time for one more question. Uh, and there's two left, so whoever wrote this one should come up and ask us separately. But um, one of the things we wanted to end on was sort of a positive note uh, what can you do, you know, and uh, this question relates to that. How can we address the issue of this advice to look beneath the surface for sex trafficking in your, in your society? Um, how can we advocate for victims of human trafficking? Uh, we know that there's a lot of different scenarios playing out, especially in Houston, given that this is a center for immigrants and international uh, refugees from Asia and Africa, and we've seen all sorts of scenarios play out here from the cantina scenario I was talking about to, you know, a young girl literally being held in a house to um, people who were brought here originally as sort of, you know, s domestic servants mm -hmm. and then never let out of the house. Um, what, what, can, what can you do? What can we do if we see things? Or, or what are we supposed to look for? Well, legislation is important, but so is public education. And I think we need to stop this false distinction between trafficking and prostitution. The sex trade is, is a cesspit of abuse. And there wouldn't be trafficking, which is merely a process, if we didn't have a global, vibrant, unregulated sex trade. And one thing that I think we have to do is look at the, the way that legalization and decriminalization fails at every level to reduce numbers of trafficking victims, in fact, 
in countries with those regimes, with legalisation and decrim, we've seen an increase in trafficking because it's a green light for the traffickers. We have to stop the normalisation of sex buying. And we have to make sure that men know that this is unacceptable, it's not okay. And men in Sweden now get it. Only sad men do this. Only losers do it. It's, we need to stigmatise the sex buying. In terms of, of, of support for, for women out of prostitution, more services such as the one that, that you run. But I think primary prevention has to be our, our first uh, concern. We have to stop girls being recruited into this. And in order to do that, we need to reduce and tackle the demand. And we have to make sure that you don't get hit with the same thing that's happening in Washington DC at the moment, which is a call for decriminalization as, as the answer to this. You will be told this is the answer to reduce trafficking and to make sure that the only women that, that, that end up in the sex trade are those that happily want to be there. Don't listen to this because we, local women do not want to do it. That's why you will always have women being imported and recruited into this. In the Netherlands, Dutch women are so rare in the legal brothels that where there is a Dutch woman in a brothel, there'll be a sign on the door, NL. That's how rare local women are in the legal sex trade. Um, so as to the question of what are you looking for, um, it turns out that uh, in uh, the emergency room setting, if emergency room providers or a nurse just asked two questions, they could identify a significant percentage of women in prostitution or trafficking, and they're so simple. What do you do for a living, and where do you live? These are such simple questions, so that if you hesitate and you can't answer either one of them, that's odd, right? Mm. Those are questions that we all could answer without hesitation. So, um, you know, I, I hope that, that um, you take away here that the prostitution is not a choice made out of an abundance of other options, that this uh, false dichotomy between prostitution and trafficking is, is, is that false, and that it's really due to what a complex interplay of trauma, substance abuse, mental health issues, and often poverty. But that there is a way out, mm. and the women that I just left today um, celebrating a special occasion are living testimony of that. All right. I'd like to thank all of you all for taking time out of your evening to join us for this important conversation. And please join me in thanking our panelists one more time. <laughs> We'd now like to invite all of you all to join on the panel for reception and conversation and for book signing. Um, we'd also to, uh, like to ask you to come back this Saturday for the award ceremony at 3 o'clock um, this Sunday. You can come Saturday if you want, but stay until Sunday. Um, and also, we want to ask, I know that many of you would like to engage with the panelists and ask them questions, so if you don't mind just waiting until they come out on the plaza before you begin talking with them. Thank you.